1: Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R show and podcast about film and TV on the big and small screen. Uh, Flick Ford is still out of town, so this week you've got me, Will Cox, and my special guest this week is feminist media and cultural studies scholar from Monash University, Dr. Tao Fan. Hey, Tao. Hello, hello. How you doing?
2: Oh, you yeah, know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk good. about some movies.
2: Let's do it. Ready. <laughs>
1: Stuart. us do it, bro. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, in just a minute we'll be hearing from uh, Dr. Stuart Richards and Dr. Sage Walton. That's three doctors uh, and me and I have uh, an associate degree who <laughs> <laughs> have been out at the Adelaide Film Festival this weekend and we're lucky enough to have their thoughts on a handful of new films and a little later in the show, Tao and I will be talking about two new releases, the queer rom-com Bros and the Melbourne-centric documentary The Lost History of Melbourne. Also you can uh while you listen to us chatting about these films, feel free to hit us up on some social media channels. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm not going to tell you the handles, you know how to find them. Uh, and now, as promised, we're off to Adelaide with Stewie Richards and Sage Walton. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. All
3: right, you are listening to Triple R and you're tuning into Primal Screen. My name is Stuart Richards, and I'm joined today by Dr. Sage Walton, who is a senior lecturer in screen studies at the University of South Australia and a wonderful colleague of mine. Uh, she's also a fellow alumni of University of Melbourne, so some of you may remember her from your early days in screen studies. Sage, thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me and reminding me of my early days.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so we are in the midst of the Adelaide Film Festival. We are currently on day six, What day, day five. Is
0: it? What day is it? Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's all blurring now. Um, <laughs> But we are really excited to share with all of the listeners the wonderful films that we have been seeing uh, and to talk about our love of the Adelaide Film Festival. Um, The festival is now uh, an annual event. Previously, it was biannual. And uh, our previous festival was in 2020, where we were one of the very few film festivals in the world to be able to deliver a festival to live audiences, which attracted significant international attention and interest. Despite the global pandemic, the 2020 edition um, had a 23% growth in sales, uh, and it included 26 world premieres, 32 Australian premieres, 50% female directors, and over 200 screenings. Another significant aspect of the Adelaide Film Festival, which is worth talking about, is the investment fund. And that has uh, seen seed and premiere uh, some of the most significant Australian films of the last 20 years. And I was looking at the list of films that have received support from the investment fund, and it's quite extensive. I won't read the entire list out because we'll be here a while, but Some of the films the Investment Fund has supported includes My Name is Gulpul, Animals, Top End Wedding, The Nightingale, Cargo, Sweet Country, Ali's Wedding, Girl Asleep, Spear, 52 Tuesdays, Charlie's Country, Snowtown, Samson and Delilah, Home Song Stories, and Ten Canoes, just to name a few. Sage, why is the investment funds so significant
0: um i think it's an unusual uh model of funding um it'll be interesting to see um now that the festival is annual um what what kind of titles continue to come out of the festival like as you as you've um listed those titles there that's kind of incredible uh, in terms of the history of australian cinema the fund itself i believe dates back to 2003 um, so this idea of a festival, not just as an exhibition site or a premiere site, but also being an active financial investor in and producer of Australian contents, I think is a really kind of important model in the in the particularly in the contemporary kind of screen age. Um, I know a number of um, directors and producers who have been affiliated with this fund. Um, uh, I'm thinking of um, that another a uh, wonderful title that premiered back in 2020 when when Pomegranate's Hound. Yes. Which was also put up um, for, uh, I think, the Australian nominee for Best International Picture, actually, that year for the Oscars. But um, I remember the director talking at the time about how difficult it was to get that type of film financed and made in australia so i think it's a it's i mean of course the fund has these kind of headline directors and it's got a stable of creatives as well i think that 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 um have come out of of the fund but i think um yeah it, it's kind of quality indicator, I guess, mm. and and um, the Adelaide Film Festival certainly had a long history of that. So I know that the MIF Premier Fund came after it. Is it 2009? Um, I, I'm sorry. It, it came
3: shortly I so. after yeah. it. Yeah,
0: think so, yeah. So it's interesting to see the co- type of content also that's coming out of the MIF Premier Fund, um, things like Nitrum um, I know was financed through the MIF Fund as well. So I, th- I think these kind of quality indicators um, are... Of, of kind of landmark Australian cinema actually that, that's having its premiere, that's financed by a particular festival, and we only have, um, we have AF and MIF doing that, also having its world premiere then, but also going on after its kind of, I guess, financial investment in the festival t- to live a long kind of afterlife, I guess, is a key title of Australian Australian filmmaking.
3: Yeah, that longevity beyond the festival circuit yeah. is really important. Yeah. Um, speaking of the festival circuit... The Adelaide Film Festival is also really quite well placed in the festival calendar, isn't it?
0: Yeah, um, so it comes after um, Venice and and one of the new initiatives that we've seen this year is Adelaide, in terms of the programming, the Adelaide um, Film Festival, giving a kind of dedicated space or slot to Australian premieres that are direct from Venice and we've seen that happen. They've been staging these at the Capri. So there's been a number of key titles, I guess, that Adelaide, um, because of its positioning on the festival calendar, has been able to bring to Australian audiences direct from Venice. And that, that's that been a really kind of exciting um, section mm. of the programming this year. And obviously it's been very successful for them as well. Um, yes. And a number of sold-out kind of uh, shows happening, Yeah.
3: Uh, And for the Melbourne listeners, the Capri Theatre is a big grand theatre in Goodwood. Think of it as the Adelaide version of the Astor.
0: Yes, it's it's, it's a wonderful deco. deco
3: Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, So the first film we'll talk about is the opening night film, The Angels Kicking Down the Door, uh, which uh, is a musical documentary uh, directed by Madeline Parry. Which looks at the band The Angels, uh, which hurtled out of Adelaide in the 1970s. And the music documentary tracks their success to the international stage. Um, at the after party, The Angels uh, also performed, which Sage, I believe you you stuck it out for.
0: <laughs> I did. It was very loud, but yeah. there was a lot of <laughs> fantastic energy about it. So, yeah.
3: And what did you think of the documentary?
0: I thought it was. A crowd pleaser. Um, I've spoken to a number of people um, that that were there, um, and some who weren't familiar with the Angels, so and others who were uh, rabid fans of of the Angels. So I think it was savvy programming. It's mm. it, it was very much. Pitched as a popular kind of yeah, kick him. Down, kick, what did they kick him down the door?
3: Like you know, down the like, door.
0: Adela- Adelaide film festivals, you know, or, or festivals are back, and we're kicking we yeah. down the door. And there wasn't kind of an incredible, um, I think, vibe to opening night. You know, so I think it was very much intended to be a popular crowd pleaser. I mean, it's it's also a local story. The Angels is very much a kind of you know, it's an Adelaide band. But it, you know, I think the other thing about the Angels is that they were. You know, not just popular in Adelaide, but popular kind of you know all over Australia and globally. And but they, did, but that they just didn't quite make it on the international stage. You know, despite having this kind of incredible following um, and being huge on the Australian pub, pub rock scene, but um, just not quite, quite getting there. And I guess that's a lot of what the the, the doco was about too, tracking that moment in time in which these. Pub rock bands are huge, right? But um they're not they never quite make it, I guess, in terms of mm. the LA scene, LA rock scene. There's the, music uh, fans out there that'll have equal yeah. life for saying that.
3: <laughs> uh, no, but the documentary does explore that, where you know, they kick down the door, but they may not have gone through it. They open the door for other bands to follow. Yeah. It is quite a sad documentary in parts as well, because it it, it tracks this kind of breakdown in the the friendships of the bandmates as well, particularly the two brothers and how they had a falling out. Mm. Um, th- I did find that, that, that sometimes there were some really juicy uh, moments that could have gone further. Uh, you know, the, yeah. the the discussion on, um, was it like alcohol-fueled violence at the shows, the roles of the wives and partners.
0: They're very um, much in the background.
3: To yeah, honest. and I think there were a few moments where I just Go down that avenue just for a few uh, moments just to explore that. And I find it glossed over that, which I think makes sense because it is a crowd-pleasing documentary. Um, it
0: felt to me like something that might might potentially, and we um, know the the, the director, is it, she had previously done, is it um, Nanette for, for Netflix? It, it felt very much like a, a Netflix-type music, music doco. It didn't, for me, get into, I guess, some of the the darker stories. Um, I mean, yes, the, the band members fell out. There, there's the suggestions of kind of alcohol abuse, and of course the kind of fact that Doc is no longer with us. Mm. But was so central to those 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 um, pivotal years for the Angels on the kind of Aussie rock scene. But yeah, it it, it did feel like this will this will probably be, end up on Netflix. That was my my impression of it. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. Yeah. Ones, you know? Got into the music. It, it's kind of it's very skillfully put together as well because a lot it of is. that content from back then, because it was shot, filmed pre pre digital, you know, and, and was in kind of um, pub bar rooms and stuff. You know, it would have been really difficult to, to oh. find that kind of archival material. So the fact that they were able to piece together something that was gritty but still quite polished looking, you know, and basically by going back to performances on things like Countdown.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, yeah.
3: The performance footage is incredible. Um, Another film that I saw which has been getting a lot of attention uh, in the press uh, because one of the stars uh, is Michael Grandage's My Policeman, which uh, is uh, based on the 2012 novel by Bethan Roberts, Uh, And it stars Emma Corrin, Linus Broach, Gina McKee, and, of course, Harry Styles. Uh, This is a love triangle film where uh, a a gay policeman, Tom, uh, marries a schoolteacher, Marion, played by uh, uh, Emma Corrin, um, and he develops this affair with Patrick, played by the incredible Linus Roach. The film uh, is a mix. It kind of jumps between uh, the the 60s, sorry, the the 50s and the 90s uh, with these three characters played by um, sort of older versions, including Gina McKee, who's incredible. Rupert Everett also uh, features, and it jumps between these two timelines. It is a really well-made film. Uh, The cinematography is really stunning. Um, There's a real emphasis on hands throughout the film as it kind of, you you know, the touch is really important. Harry Styles um, is capable, I would say, in his performance, but when he's surrounded by such strong performers with Emma Corrin and Linus Roach, it it doesn't really stack up uh, with the other performances. Though I will say the sex scenes really go there <laughs> I was quite shocked at how um intense those sex scenes were with with Harry Styles so that's something to look out for <laughs> um
0: that was definitely a sold-out session
3: yeah it was a sold-out session and it had a mix of a lot of gay men and then a lot of One Direction fans <laughs> and 100% giggling through some of the scenes uh Sage what was another film that you saw
0: Well, uh, my favourite one that I have seen so far, which was one of the kind of um, presentations at the the Capri Theatre and I think that Harry Styles' film was also, is um, The Banshees of Ishirin. I hope I'm saying that correctly. (laughs) Ishirin, The Banshees of Ishirin. Yes. Um, Which has actually been my, my, I think it will be one of my favourite films this year. It is um, an incredible, I believe it's getting a a general release, but not until November. So um, an Irish film set in 1923 against the backdrop of the Irish Civil War uh, it centers on two two friends played by Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell and one day uh the uh, Gleeson character down the pub on the island says to his friend i just i don't want to see you anymore i don't want to talk to you you know i, I don't want to be your friend i don't like you anymore and so this very kind of um Incredible story um, begins to unfold against this beautiful Irish landscape, with the backdrop of the Civil War kind of behind this male friendship um, and and the, the town. Um, there's a lot I don't want to give away in terms mm. of spoilers, so yeah. um, this is um, Martin McDonough Yeah, yeah. Who's the director of In Bruges and Three Billboards Outside Missouri? Um, I think this is the best. He's ever done. and I know there's a lot of cult followers of that director. It's 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 incredible. It's a very um, it's a very sad film. Actually, I I went into it expecting it to be Irish comedy, and it is. It's it's it is very funny, but it's it's very
3: dark. It's very darkly funny. Yeah. (laughs) Um. Uh, The next film, which we both saw at the wonderful Capri Theatre, was the Australian premiere of Tar a psychological drama written and directed by Todd Field, starring none other than Kate Blanchett, who was in attendance, uh, Nomi Merlant from The um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Nen Hoss, um, and Mark Strong. The, uh, the film explores Lydia Tarr, who is the greatest living composer and the first female chief conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. Uh, she is at the top of her game, uh, but once an accusation is raised, um, her hubris uh, potentially could bring her down. What did you think of Tar, Sage?
0: I think it's it's very much, and I, I think we see this from the poster, it's very much a vehicle for, for Kate, for, for Queen Kate, and, you know, as usual with, with Kate Blanchett, of course, she she delivers a, a powerhouse performance I am one of the people that um and I know that this this film has been receiving interestingly mixed reports. Um I'm I'm one of the people that falls on the side of it's too long. Yes. It's nearly 3 hours. Yeah. Um and so as much as I loved Kate's performance in it, I was kind of yeah, I, there were parts of it where I was I was lagging, you know. I,
3: mm-hmm. Yeah yeah in the I mean, the it was the Capri theater was sold out. so that's over I think it's eight hundred people in attendance by the second hour ticking over, you could really hear the uncomfortable rustling around in the seats and that people were getting restless. Uh, I found It's
0: definitely something you want to see in a theater that I mean yeah. it, it is that kind of it is that kind of film. it's 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 grand. I mean it's grand, isn't it mm, like in it some is. ways. and you know, I think, that's also the kind of the trajectory of, of the narrative. It's 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 grand, you know. We first encounter Lydia Tár, who's the character played by Kate Blanchett, who's a maestro um, at the height of her career, and so um, you know it's it's operatic in it, mm. it, it scale at times, and then it everything kind of starts to devolve, uh, yes. unravel. Um, whether or not the film needed to take all that time to to get to where it ends up is is another question that I'll leave. Listeners to to decide
3: after yeah yeah the the unraveling kind of happened very quickly towards the end. I thought the the lead-in time perhaps was um, a bit too long. I, I think the script probably needed a significant edit. I would say there were a few scenes which had very nice moments, but I'm not sure if they added anything to the film.
0: There are a number of, you know, and I, I think this is a really interesting kind of um, directorial decision. There are there are a number of prolonged sequences that are largely um, one take. Yeah. Um, so the opening where we begin with Lydia in an interview sequence about how she thinks about uh, music and and kind of in relation to, to to herself. There's another sequence where she she's teaching a class in Juilliard. Um, or giving a kind of masterclass in Juilliard that's a prolonged sequence as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, so those are lengthy sequences, but I, I felt like they, they had a place. Um, yes. they, had a, they had a place. They were kind of, you know, they worked for me, uh, particularly in terms of, of Blanchett's performance. I will say at the same time, I think, you know, and I, I commented to, um, this to you the other day, I, I do wonder who this film is for. Mm. You know, and how it will kind of track, I guess, internationally because everyone will be, of course, interested to see Kate. But it's it's quite an esoteric film. Yes. So, you know, with the opening sequences or when she's kind of conducting all these kind of very um, intellectualist references about Mala and kind of, you know, um, classical music and, that are woven into the script kind of throughout, really. And whether or not, I guess, it would be interesting to see how audiences after the festival, respond to this particular character?
3: Yes. I will confess that I thought Lydia Tarr was a real person. (laughs) (laughs) And in the Uber on the way home I was Googling the real Lydia Tarr only to find out there's no real Lydia Tarr, which interestingly I think is a big part of the hype of the film because in a lot of the promotional material and how the film is spoken about, They do try to portray Lydia Tara as this real person. Um, And I I note in um, that there's the use of a scream in the woods in one sequence and the actual audio footage is from the Blair Witch Project, which I thought was an interesting choice because the build-up to that film was the Blair Witch is real. And I think they're doing a similar thing here where Lydia Tara is real um, and they're trying to kind of fool the audience in a way. That's my theory.
0: It's a it's a very the other thing that I I was struck by is it's a very cool film, yeah. Like it's it's very detached at, mm. at, at points as well. So we hear a lot about Lydia's kind of interests, I guess, in her her students or her you know um, she's accused of, of of grooming her students, you know, playing favorites and so on. But it's not a very erotic no. film at all. Like it, mm. it, you know, it's it it does not have that kind of sense that kind of sense of physicality about it but its coolness is quite different to, to a director like michael haneke yeah. um where you get this kind of you know the coolness is is interrupted by um outbursts of violence you yeah. know or horror or or whatever this is far more prolonged than that it's prolonged kind of coolness which i think also maybe has something to do with my experience of it at times kind yeah. of you know needing to be more more kind of varied um cuz i felt that after the second half, it's it kind of in one effective note, one mm. emotional tone that, yeah. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to, to see how it tracks, I guess.
3: We do need to move on to the next film, but I do also want to flag that, yes, we will see Kate Blanchett in the awards season buzz, but I reckon we'll also be seeing Nina Hoss in the supporting category. She's fantastic in this film.
0: They're saying that you'll also be seeing um, Colin Farrell too as a yes. result of the, the Irish film. Yeah. And she's...
3: Uh, so on to our next film, uh, which is uh, an investment fund uh, re- recipient, and we had the international uh, premiere last night. Rolf de Heer's The Survival of Kindness. Um, in the middle of the desert, uh, a character named Black Woman, played by the incredible Mwa Jemi Hussein, is abandoned, left to die in a cage. Uh, But she escapes and journeys through um, several different landscapes to finally find herself in a city uh, where her quest goes on a really interesting turn. Um, That's all I'll say about the plot because I think the less we say about the film, the better in terms of where it goes. Uh, But uh, it is largely dialogue-free um, towards the end, we get lots of lines of dialogue in other languages that are not captioned or translated. Um, so it's largely through the expressive gestures of the performers on screen that we have to follow what's happening. Did you like the survival of Kindness? Now that we've had to, we've had the night to dwell on it.
0: I'm still processing it. Actually, mm. I think it's an incredible film, um, and. I'm, you know, all powered to to here because that would have been a really diff. I mean, with and also I guess it speaks to the importance of Australian film festivals, doesn't it? And the kind yes. of films that are coming out of something like the AFF investment fund, because I'm trying to imagine pitching this film to you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, the um the fact that it's it's virtually without dialogue, it's you know, almost experimental in particular moments. And but it's such a powerful social and political commentary um about race, about kind of humanity, um, mm. about finding a kind of um empathy across kind of um across people. Um yeah, I I I just thought it was amazing.
3: The world building that happens in the film it is really something else. And that's something that I'm still processing as well, where we begin and we have these expectations and assumptions in terms of where we're at. And then as the narrative unfolds, we get all these little narrative clues about where we are and what's happening. And
0: Yeah, and I think uh, this is another amazing thing about this particular film. It trusts its audience. Like, it trusts its audience to kind of... um, get their bearings um eventually, you know, because yeah. I, I was saying to you the other night, like I or last night, um, I, I just had no coordinates for the first 15 minutes. Mm. You know, okay, I mean there's a woman in the cage in in, in the desert and yeah. we don't know why she's been put in a cage or we know we, we just stay with her for a good 15 minutes or so and watch her get out of the cage and then kind of you know all these other things start to unfold or be introduced mm. into the world of the film. And so at times I was like, am I in a science fiction film? Like I, I just had no kind of genre or kind of temporal or historic markers. It's like it takes place in a, an, an atemporal mm. world. It could take place at any any particular historic period and yet it also feels utterly contemporary in terms of what the, the story that's being told. Yeah. So it's it's a bold film. Like, you know, it's a really special film.
3: Really, really special. Uh, and you saw another uh, gut-wrenching film, shall we say? Oh, yes. Yeah. So this
0: was an in <laughs> international selection. This is, this is a, a film called EO, um, which is a Polish-Italian production. I think it also had its, um, it premiered at Cannes, um, and it's the story of um, of a donkey. Um, EO or EOR I'm not sure how we're, <laughs> we're meant to pronounce it it's one of their uh, one of the uh, titles that's been selected for I think it's the social change award that is one of the awards given out by the Adelaide Film Festival for films that uh, films that further or make us think about social and environmental change so the story of I- I- EO um, we, we begin with EO who is a donkey attached to a, a circus um, and he, he works with his I guess the way I'd call it, his friend, who's another circus performer, and somehow the two of them, a the female circus performer and Eo, are separated, and then we we journey with Eo um, through many difficult through many situations. Some, of, some in which people are kind to Eo, others in which they are not. Um, so people have kind of um, said that it, it's a, it's an homage to Brassens, um, Ohazar Balthazar. Which also features a donkey, um, a donkey as the central kind of figure, um, and the donkey becomes a kind of, I guess, reflection of other people's ethics and emotion and and so on. But with, I mean, with this yeah, one, it's 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 a difficult watch at times. I will say that as a warning for people because I don't deal well with scenes of cruelty um, to animals. So, but I think that at the end, and I'm not going to give things away. The filmmakers made a there was a statement that no animals were harmed in the making of this film and that the filmmakers had made this film as a testament to their love about animals um so again this is a film that you need to see on the big screen if you at all can it's an incredible watch Uh, my only thing with it is that you know one of the how it's written about is that it's it's filmed from a donkey's point of view and I don't actually think that's the case we're not always kind of aligned with the donkey it's certainly not cinematically filmed from their point of view this is not an animal point point of view we're with kind of it's more objective than that we we move with EO through mm. the world and there's a number of kind of uh, almost surrealist cinematic pieces that EO kind of passes passes through that that suggest yeah we're not we're not um this is not an animal documentary or something something like that um yeah yeah i'll leave it it's it's a very powerful film and it has a, an incredible cameo a surprise cameo that i will not give away
3: i've heard much about this cameo yeah. in the film.
0: it comes out of nowhere and so you are really quite shocked when when this person appears on screen
3: sage what is your what are you looking forward to in the rest of the festival
0: um, I'm looking forward to another um, Adelaide Film Investment Fund title, which is called The Last Daughter, um, which is um, which is a, a documentary um, about a woman called Brenda Matthews. Um, so that's um, one of my uh, titles that I'm looking forward to. What else? What about you, Stuart?
3: I'm looking forward to Willa the Wisp, uh, directed by Rodriguez, who... Uh, directed The Ornithologist, which was a number of years ago, um, and I'm also looking forward to The Triangle of Sadness.
0: Oh, yeah. I, well, I know that that's going to, that's, that's on my, I'm, I'm stealing myself for that. I think yeah. that would be another one of my, my yeah. um, films of the year. There's another um, film, it's a music docker apparently that's been doing incredibly well. It was also at the Sydney Film Festival. Um, it's also sold out here, uh, which is called Meet Me in the, the Band Room or Meet Me in the bathroom um it's about that kind of um indie indie rock scene that came came out of new york with the aes Interpol, the strokes and apparently the um the archival footage that they've got is 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 amazing so it'll be an interesting counterpoint Mm. to the angels to see how how band relationships are treated in this music doco which which deals with Multiple bands you oh. know, at a particular moment in time, like you know, early two thousands indie rock, compared to to just one band, I guess with with the
3: Angels. So, so thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, and uh, if you are in Adelaide, you can check out the festival. It's running till uh, October thirtieth. Thank you this for joining us.
0: This is Gillian us. Armstrong, and you are listening to Primal Screen on Three Triple R.
1: You're listening to Primal Screen on 3RR with me, Will Cox, and my special guest this week, feminist media and cultural studies scholar from Monash University, Dr. Tao Fan. Thanks to Stewie Richards and Sage Walton, both doctors, Dr. Stewie Richards and Dr. Sage Walton, over in Adelaide for that roundup of the Adelaide Film Festival thus far. To recap, the films they discussed were Angels Kicking Down the Door, My Policeman, The Banshees of Iner Ta Tar. Survival of Kindness and EO. The Adelaide Film Festival continues until the thirtieth of this month. Now we're going to talk about some uh, sad stories of Melbourne's the history of Melbourne's landscape in the new documentary, The Lost City of Melbourne.
3: Melbourne was the fastest-growing city in the world in the early eighteen fifties.
0: It was a place jumping out of its skin. You did things ten times bigger than they were done elsewhere.
3: They
1: borrowed big. They lived big. They built big.
0: Melbournians as a whole suffered from cultural
1: cringe. Melbourne wanted, above all, to be a modern city. And being modern meant having modern buildings. There was not much of a preservation movement
3: at all. It was just... vandalism.
0: But Melbourne is so very close to absolute annihilation. It is so very nearly dull beyond belief.
1: In the 19th and early 20th centuries, Melbourne was a beacon of uh, beautiful or gaudy, depending on how you look at it, Victorian architecture, from office buildings to theatres and eventually cinemas. Gold rush money translated to some truly spectacular buildings. But by the 1950s, they'd fallen out of fashion and the wrecking ball started knocking the teeth out of the city um this documentary from director gus berger looks at everything we lost and everything we didn't and Tao and i saw this together in a packed sunday afternoon screening at the thornbury picture house owned and operated by the director of this film gus berger um and we deliberately didn't talk about it and I've, i'm sure we've got lots to say um so t- Tao, yeah tell me what you think
2: yeah, I mean, I really love these kinds of films. These sort of uh, a local writes a love letter to their city sort of films. I think they're so important and give sort of testimony of experiences of lives entangled in space and place and time. Um, it's about the history of Melbourne, but it more specifically, it's about the history of architecture in Melbourne, uh, architectures and cinemas and theatres specifically. But it's also about um, the birth, I suppose, of the heritage movement in melbourne as well
1: yes which the film does cover uh quite a lot which makes it sound kind of dry but it's clearly having an impact i mean it's a couple of months into the run i think myth was when it was first uh mm-hmm. first shown that was in august and here we are in late october and uh, and it was a sold out session on a sunday afternoon Uh, noticeable gasps, I think, as some of the buildings were coming down.
2: Yes, I mean, I always think sort of uh, showing a local story in a local place, I'm so glad to see people turn up for that. You know, if people don't show up for these kinds of films here, then, you know, where else are they going to show up? And I think it really, uh, so many, you could hear people as they were leaving the cinema giving their own little anecdotes and stories, like, oh, I've been there, I'm for a show here. You know, lovely, lovely stories just, like, circulating around the place as we were walking out.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very much a... A story for Melbournians, I wonder what a non melburnian would make of it. I mean, we've both adopted Melbourne as our city, but we've both been here for about a decade. So, I mean, the emotional connection I have with some of these places is what drove my engagement with it. Yeah, do you, yeah. Do you think that, what do you think it had, what sort of impact do you think it would have on somebody if they didn't really know these locations?
2: Mm, hard to tell I mean I think it's just the, It never gets old The sort of novelty Of seeing your city on screen I mean I'm, as I was watching I thought of Death in Brunswick Or Dogs in Space Or We're Living on Dog Food You know you get such a kick mm. Seeing seeing places you recognise there I really um, think The conversation or representation can go any way, but there is something like so magical about seeing yourself there and seeing places you know and love respected in that way.
1: Or in a lot of cases, places that we don't recognise because, for instance, in Brunswick, I mean, two uh, very beautiful-looking cinemas that are no longer there, Mm. one of which was the Padua, which is the most extraordinary-looking cinema building, um, on par or better than anything we have remaining, that is now... Uh, the IGA. <laughs> the IGA. I mean, Road it's a IGA. really good IGA. Yeah, it's a good right, IGA. The cheese section is out of control. It's a good IGA if you need some cheese and you need <laughs> to go to the deli. But I wish that I could have seen a film there. Yeah. Um, but that said, um, while we see these, these beautiful buildings and um, we see uh, the wrecking ball going through them and there were just gasps in the cinema, as I said, it's really quite balanced. Um, in that it, it it says quite openly especially at some of the things in the CBd look these buildings were sitting here abandoned mm. for decades mm. they were useless uh, they were effectively uh, they're impractical they were um, impossible to turn a profit from and you know this is a this is a city so they needed to go
2: yeah exactly and I mean it speaks to that part of the conversation when it comes to heritage like the the, the value in something is not in its architectural features necessarily. It's in their use mm-hmm. by people uh, and, the, and people's love for them. And, mm. you know, these the, these things go for a reason sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as I loved this film, there is uh, a part of my brain that I, w- I was annoyed by lots of things as well. There were lots of niggling things that I couldn't let go of. What were they? Uh, so, I mean... It was a, quite a whitewashed history. Oh, yeah. If You it, you know, uh, and I mean, it's about nostalgia, inherently yeah. about nostalgia. And, and nostalgia is inherently a conservative concept, you know. Yeah. The grandeur and beauty of the Victorian era, uh-huh. like being washed away by vulgar modernism, mm. which is certainly one way to put it. But the Victorian era wasn't lovely for everyone. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it just reminds me of uh, the grandeur of the Gilded Age and how people hold that up as a, as a wonderful time for expansion mm-hmm. and so on. But it was also a time of abject poverty. Um mm and rapid inequality, and that was really not spoken to in this film. It was a really missed opportunity, the absolute non-acknowledgement of Indigenous history, um, the non-acknowledgement of, of the role of ethnic communities in ethnic cinema. Mm-hmm. One really striking moment for me was when they were sort of sadly looking at the demolition of one theatre, I can't remember its name, and then they cut to what it is now, and it's the Mid-City um, Arcade. mm mm-hmm which is a shame because what's currently in there is a Chinese cinema.
1: Right, right.
2: <laughs> you know, uh, and and I I was sad to see that cut um, and I was sad to see the history of Chinatown not acknowledged. You know, the, the longest – Melbourne has the oldest Chinatown in the world.
1: Yeah, that's true. That Chinatown didn't get a look in, did it?
2: No. It, well, it got one scene about opium dens. Uh,
1: opium dens, yes, uh, including a shot of um, – some Europeans in an opium den for a um, bit of novelty there. But, uh, yeah, it did gloss over a lot. It glosses over a lot of the, um, for instance, it talks about the Little lawn District mm. with some jaunty music in the background saying, oh, it was pretty wild in there. It's like, well, there's some fascinating history in there that we didn't get to.
2: Well, I mean, that for sure. I mean, they didn't talk about um, adult cinemas,
1: Right, okay, that's an interesting angle.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the longest continuing cinema in Melbourne is an adult cinema, The Crazy Horse.
1: Where's that? That's on Elizabeth Street? On
2: Elizabeth Street. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's annoying because when I was reading up about it, um, one of the experts who, has, who really aggressively campaigned and advocated to save Crazy Horse, which I think they successfully did so, is one of the experts in the film, um, David Kildery.
1: Right, okay, so he's an advocate for cinemas. He's a cinema owner himself? Yes,
2: yeah, he was a cinema owner slash uh, cinema historian.
1: Right, do you know what cinema he owns?
2: Uh, I don't actually. No. I don't. Maybe he owns a crazy horse, I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's a shame that that didn't get a measure. I mean, I guess the focus on architecture, Yeah. things like the mid-city, I mean, on the face of it, because I didn't, I didn't make that connection about the Chinese cinema in the mid-city. Um, so on the face of it, I saw a beautiful building that is now something of an eyesore of a building. And I guess that's on the preservation, uh, it comes back to the preservation of facades, which is far more of a common thing now, um, which just um, helps keep the city looking a little bit lively and less of a dive. Mm. Um, And up the road, uh, the metro, uh, which was the facade has been maintained, but the facade was arguably the least Mm. valuable thing uh, about that building.
2: Yeah, and I um, mean, it says something to like superficial preservation. Yeah. I mean, it's rich with metaphor that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also, even slightly further up the road than that, um, there were, I don't know exactly what was demolished there. I'm sure it was covered in the film, but what became the ICI mm. building, which uh, they didn't discuss the fact that uh, when that was, uh, whatever was there was demolished, and now the ICI is, is, is one of the, the great landmarks of modernist mm. architecture. In Melbourne, I think it's the oldest and one of the most beautiful uh, bits of modernist architecture. So in its nostalgia about the Victorian era, it doesn't really come to uh, anything about modernism or further. Robin Boyd gets a mention.
2: Yeah, but just a little.
1: A little a little taste, yeah. I mean, it does also, it, it goes into uh, the history of cinemas quite mm. a lot and the history of film going, mm. which is evidently a passion of, of, of Gus Burgess as yes. owning... Uh, the Thornbury Picture House, one um, of
2: my favourite cinemas in Melbourne. Oh,
1: it's a beautiful cinema, and it's you know small at fifty-seven seats, but absolutely, it was sold out as I said two months into the run. So this film's clearly it's having an impact on on the audience still. But I thought maybe some of its talk about cinema got it was kicking the story into the weeds a little bit. I thought maybe come back to the core concept of it because there's so much to talk about in architecture.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, even as a history of cinema, cinema in Australia, again, what a shame not to talk about segregation and, like, the role of cinemas in maintaining the status quo. Um,
1: The role of cinemas?
2: In maintaining the status quo. Can you
1: talk to that a little bit more?
2: Uh, Well, very famously, sort of who is allowed to sit at the front, who's allowed to sit at the back? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the National Museum has preserved these cinema seats from this very famous cinema in Darwin uh, called, I think it's called the Star city or something like that, which was wiped away in um, Cyclone Tracy. But the reason they preserved those seats is because uh, Aboriginal Indigenous people had, the you know, the really crappy wooden seats and everyone else got a plush, nice seat. Um, and that is that is Australia's history. And mm. I don't know a parallel history in Melbourne, but I'm sure it exists. I think it would be a shame not to investigate that further.
1: Interesting. Well, there's another film in this, or at least a series of articles. This is this yeah. is good stuff.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's been written about. I mean, ha- I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't mean to sort of like criticise this film too much because it takes an unbelievable amount of work to do something like this and to work against um, the grain of, you know, gra- or grand narratives. That is so much extra work, mm. you know, this is a this is a story of cinema that hasn't been told yet, and mm. I'm already jumping to the like, what about the hidden history? Yeah, that's very nitpicky exactly. of me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: mean, this is this is the starting point, yes, isn't it? This is a this is a missing story that hasn't been discussed. Yeah. Um. And um. There's there's plenty more in the in the area, and I think in Australian history, lots of overlooked stories. Yeah. Um. And we can tend to yeah, when a story like this comes out, we think it's not detailed enough. But, mm. I mean, there's an amazing follow up in that. Um. I think that probably covers it i have to say that I, I i did think it's a i think it's a fascinating documentary i absolutely loved it um it's very low-key mm. um it's clearly a passion project um but absolutely worthwhile and i should just say about the thornbury picture house as well he talks a little bit about cinemas being demolished for petrol stations the thornbury picture house is a petrol station uh, one of melbourne's first i think that has been reappropriated as a cinema which is um a nice little... Uh,
2: a neat little package. A nice little historical
1: <laughs> corrective there. Yes. Um, the Lost City of Melbourne is on at the Thornbury Picture House and selects other cinemas including Palace and Nova across Melbourne. Um, Bros is released nationally this week uh, in which podcaster and romantic cynic Bobby, played by Billy Eichner, has been appointed the curator of a new LGBTQ museum with his work cut out from butting heads with the diverse and disagreeable board of the museum. Bobby's life is complicated even further when he meets the, quote, hot but boring Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane, and a rocky courtship begins across the social territory of the 21st century queer love. Directed by Nicholas Stoller, who made Forgetting Sarah Marshall and The Five-Year Engagement, uh, and co-written by Stoller and leading man Eichner, Uh, Bros is is an honest and uh, all-queer cast uh rom-com which is something of a first but how does it add up to something worthwhile do you think
2: absolutely what a lovely romp i had a fun time <laughs> yeah. i had a great time yeah. yeah and it was i watched this uh literally as soon as i got home from watching lost city of melbourne and can i tell you a more different film it couldn't be <laughs> yeah
1: yeah i'm glad we got that contrast in there
2: yeah um, don't say we don't have range here we got oh, range
1: <laughs> yeah look i mean there's so many things that um as I said, it's an all-queer cast. Everyone, including the straight characters, are played by queer people, aside from a few cameos, um, which are pretty obvious. Uh, but uh, more trans and non-binary people than I've ever seen on screen. Outside in a mainstream, of a
2: drag race cast. On, In a
1: mainstream film, yeah. yep. More frankness about gay sex than I've ever seen yes. in a mainstream film. Um, But it's all window dressing if the film's not good, and the film is very, very funny. Yeah, it's It's got
2: probably one of the top five dumbest and funniest sex scenes I've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) after Hot Hot Shots 2. Showgirls,
1: great. Showgirls. <laughs> oh, wow, this is good company.
2: Yeah. Dance with wolves? funny. Funny sex scene. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you feel, though, that as a rom-com, because the genre isn't really what it was, like it's a bit mm. of a throwback sometimes. And there's a, they even call that out with Bobby relaxing by watching You've Got Mail. Um, yeah, yeah. So it is a bit of a throwback. but
2: it's, it's unbelievably self-aware.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the cast are largely unknown as well. Yep. Which I think says a lot about the amount of roles for queer people.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that, uh, you know, because this film was considered a box office flop. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Because it didn't do the traditional rom com thing, which is to like, you know, partner uh, up-and-coming person with like an, a big name mm. um, to sort of get it out. But it's like it's the irony of trying to get a fully queer outcast yeah. is that you don't have those yeah. big names to necessarily call upon.
1: Well, this formula I think was has been used before because this is a Judd Apatow production mm. and he has previously – he a few years ago he made The Big Sick um, which uses, you know, non-white cast – not entirely non-white, but it was doing the same thing where it was bringing in uh, an unknown cast Mm -hmm. and um, uh, fleshing it out into a very, very commercial-feeling film. Mm. And I think that was a hit.
2: Yeah, Um, and Trainwreck, he did as well? Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, Amy Schumer has a bit more clout, perhaps. She got something. Yeah, although... (laughs) Although box office clout, you know, like yeah, yeah. Uh, she's recognizable, whereas Eichner is fantastic, but he's, he doesn't have much uh, name recognition.
2: I had no idea who he was.
1: Right. Well, I mean, he he's a, a late seasons character in Parks and Recreation, and he does a very funny youtube show called billy on the street where he just screams at people it's fantastic um, but he said about this film that the straights just didn't come out for it is mm. i think how he put it um and it has not been a box office success but i have a feeling it's going to be around for a long time to come um and it'll pick up some life in streaming um that's really had to race through bros there i'm afraid that's all we've got time for um so i'd like to thank our panel of doctors dr Tao fan dr stewie richards dr sage walton um you can listen back to the show within half an hour on uh, R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Primal Screen page at rrr.org.au right now. Um, you can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. Uh, a huge thank you to Luke Lay for editing the Primal Screen podcast, Carl Chapman for pressing all the buttons in the studio tonight because I don't know what any of them do, and providing producing assistance. Um, and it's good night from us...